This is Our Legacy, changing what it means to be blind in New South Wales and the ACT. And as those who are involved in causing and promoting change know, it's not easy, and it often comes at a cost to the change agents. Hello, I'm Angela Caterns, and in this podcast series, you'll hear the voices and stories of people who are blind or vision impaired, and how they've changed what it means to be blind in New South Wales and the ACT. You'll hear about their lives, about the importance of mentoring and peer support, about the places that meant so much to them, and about some of the campaigns for change on which they worked. You'll hear memories from the 1950s to the early 2000s, from some of the men and women who simply wanted to make things better. Episode 1, Growing Up. Because the winds are changing. My parents, I was the first eldest child in the family, and so they had had no experience of bringing up a blind child. Of course, they started taking me to doctors at a fairly early age to see what could be done about my sight. And eventually, when I was five, I was sent to Sydney, and my parents came with me to have a fairly major eye operation, which was not a success. Joan Letterman was the first woman to become president of Blind Citizens Australia. She was a lover of and champion of Braille, promoting it widely and leading Braille production at the Royal Blind Society of New South Wales. She worked on the standardisation of Braille at a national and international level. She was a friend and mentor to many blind or vision impaired people. Somehow, and I'm not quite sure how, maybe the hospital told them about the blind school and so a teacher came to see them and it was arranged that I should go to the blind school, not return back home because it was over 400 miles back to our farm. And so I went straight to the blind school and my parents went off back to the country. I was the second of three children and I grew up in a little town called Mullaney, just about in the Sunshine Coast hinterland, about 60 miles from Brisbane. Uh, well, I was born in Sydney. I was born in Sydney and I grew up on the northern beaches. Um, I was born in, in Hobart. Well, I was actually born um, out in the country uh, near Lake Jellico. Uh, it was actually on an Aboriginal mission called Murrin Bridge. But I was born in Melbourne in Victoria. I was born in 1935 and I spent the first five years of my life at, at Yurunga. Throughout her life, Mari Shang has championed a better quality of life for people who are blind or vision impaired. Mari, her husband and family have been stalwart members of the Association of Blind Citizens of New South Wales. She believes strongly in and has demonstrated over and over again the value of peer support. I was really blessed with my family. I'm the middle uh, child of three and uh, I had uh, my parents were uh, very supportive uh, of all of us and took the very um, strong view. And, and this was 
without much guidance really they sort of work this out themselves that i i should to the maximum extent possible participate uh in activities along with all the other kids and that was a really great start for me a lot of parents with the best of intentions uh, sort of wrap kids with disabilities uh, in cotton wool and I understand why they do that because they want their children to be safe and uh, and okay but what it does is limits your experiences and opportunities um, whereas I had a few of the you know bumps and scrapes and uh, they must have hurt mum and dad almost as much as they hurt me but I learned so much from that environment. I was the, um, the middle so I had an older sister and a younger brother. Uh, the youngest of five. I had an older brother and three younger siblings. I was the third eldest of 15 children. Uh, two, uh, three sisters, actually, and... Uh, went to school at uh, uh, North Rocks School for Blind Children. I first went to school at the School for the Blind at Warunga on 111 Pacific Highway. Well, actually, Warunga uh, first, and then North Rocks uh, about six months after I started school. I went to the sight-saving school when I was very young because I had a little bit of sight. had an operation and lost I went to the St Paul's School for Blind in Melbourne. Then I went to um, school at Wurunga, School for the Blind and Vision Impaired. Then that closed and I went to North Rocks. Well, first of all, I went to um, Sandy Robertson's, um, which was a preschool for blind children. Uh, that was run by Royal Blind Society, as it was called then. As soon as you say you go to school at Wurunga, they want to say, oh, you go to St Lucy's. You went to St Lucy's, no. Uh, primary school, I went to St Lucy's School for the Blind. The family uh, moved to Western Sydney. We were able to get um, a house uh, because it was in closer proximity to the North Rocks School for Blind Children where I studied for many years. Then they'd arranged for... Um the ones that, that could to go to our local high school. And uh, transitioned then into a mainstream high school, my local high school at Seven Hills Grantham High School. Learned things like Braille, daily living skills, also social skills, a smaller school, so it prepared me with some life skills before moving on to a mainstream high school. Uh, but yes, it was pretty miserable, particularly for my mother, who had to get me up at five o'clock on Monday morning. Uh, you know, and shipped me off for the week. She, was, she begged my father for quite a while. I don't recall this, but she told me that she actually begged my father to move to Brisbane, uh, which he wouldn't do because he grew up in the Depression and he just... I don't think he could face the concept of giving a secure job up to, you know, up, uproot everybody at, at the risk of not getting another job. The accommodation side of it stayed with the deaf school and so blind kids from the country had to actually live at the deaf school and it was a very 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 rough environment so not only was I five years old uh, and I cried every morning and every Monday morning till about 10 o'clock um, but it was rough because deaf, deaf kids tend to be uh, pretty rough. Well, I think the matter of being different from other kids is something that dawned on me gradually. We have to remember a whole lot of things that other people don't have to remember. People can walk along the street and say, oh, uh, Joe's house is down there. They're, oh, there it is. We have to know it's the fourth house or, the, or, or it's the third shop or the, 
the uh, the post offices over there on the diagonal corner. We can't see those things. We have to remember them. Anyone has has it tough going to a new school. I had to get to know new people, and uh, it was a new environment that I had to navigate around. I was very unprepared. I think I was actually happier at school than I was at home. There were some um, sources of frustration in dealing with um, staff. Because we were only at home at holidays, and I think you become more familiar and more at home in the places you spend the most time in. Because in those days at the blind school, those, the children only went home twice a year. And after you'd been there a little while when the holidays were coming up, you wouldn't have dared admit it, but you were a bit reluctant to go home. The family had become strangers in a way and I was the eldest in the family so my siblings came along after me so I didn't miss them in the same sense when I went to school at first because they were younger. So I stayed there till um, I reached high school uh, till, uh, till I'd done one year of high school in um, at Cavendish Road High in Brisbane and then came to the North Rocks Central School for Blind Children in North Rocks in Sydney in 1974. <laughs> just to have a, a timetable for the day and uh, a long day and yes it was just uh, it was a real um, shock to me it was, took me quite a while to come to terms with it really my preference would have been to go to uh, the regular school near home and there was always the um, the bullying aspect by the sighted kids the older kids too to the younger kids or the blind kids someone different coming on to the, the campus and um, wanted to get the, the Sharpies, which was their teenage gang, onto me and beat me up and that sort of thing. But we got through all that and um, eventually they accepted me as, as just one of, the, one of the class. You know, I just treated it as part of the course at the time. I mean, it happens in all schools, I think. Um, high school was um, a different social experience. I was the only blind person there. I don't have any vision at all actually. That was a very different dynamic in that they'd be needing to a lot of, be doing a lot of ice breaking with teenagers which is interesting at the best of times and also being a teenager myself by then. That was quite um, a really challenging and sometimes lonely time but it helped me grow stronger and become proficient and build my resilience so it's all learning is, is positive it's just a matter of discovering that positivity later. Well, one of the things that I did in order to uh, uh, to get to know the kids was that I became a big supporter of the uh, of the soccer team. Soccer was the big sport at Asheville Boys High. There was a, there was a lot of uh, mixed origin uh, kids uh, at the school from all sorts of countries all around the world. So soccer was big, and uh, we were quite competitive in soccer. In, in soccer, and also I used to be able to follow the game reasonably well because if you went to a game, you could hear the ball being kicked, so you knew where the where the play was. And uh, so I, I became a big supporter of theirs, and uh, used to uh, be part of their regular cheer squad which they appreciated, so much so that uh, when I got into the debating team at school, uh, they came along to my debates, but they soon discovered that they couldn't quite barrack in the same way as I had at the soccer matches uh, during the debating process. I had a 
um, network of friends in the local town when we used to go home for weekends. Um, we'd go to church every week. I had a couple of really good friends uh, who I haven't kept in touch with since, but um, because in, initially I had some quite useful vision, so it was fairly easy for me to um, to, to sort of play with the kids. Like I, I can recall having, I think it was a ninth birthday party and I had seven or eight kids there that, I, that I'd chosen. We had uh, our teacher was a, a fairly an older nun, but she was very much down to business. You did, you did your, your spelling and your this and your that and the other thing, and and uh, you know you worked hard every day. <laughs> Started off with a roster of everybody taking turns to take me around, which had good and bad aspects. At least I got to meet people, but of course some of the the there was a girls' school, so some of the girls were you know, found it not too hard. Others, you know, found it a bit difficult. So that went on for about a term, I think, and then I eventually kind of got into a group um, that, that accepted me. But I wasn't very socially skilled. I was very shy. I was able to mix fairly well because, um, as I say, I think what helped a lot was having these family on the property nearby where there was another girl who was just three months younger than I. So when we got to the stage of you know, young teenagers wanting to go out to dances and to things like that. She included me and we were very good friends and so I became part of that community too. I remember we having um, a thing called a braillette board, which was um, a sort of wooden frame with uh, cells of six little holes in, in each and tacks and you put the tacks in to, to form the letters. If you're using a braille writing frame, you write from the right to the left because the braille comes through on the other side of the paper. So when you turn it over, it's where it ought to be. Maybe it wasn't ideal, but it worked for Louis Braille and thousands of people after him. <laughs> and, and it's only since about the, probably the 60s or something, that people haven't used that. The big dilemma I, I think a lot of blind teenagers have is, should I have a sighted boyfriend or should I have a blind boyfriend, you know, should I have any blind friends at all? Um, which is, you know, I'm sure that it's a struggle for nearly all blind people. Really, there was only a few choices of boys. And I think what tended to happen is you, you went from one to the other until you'd exhausted them all. <laughs> Um, I, I didn't sort of think in terms of I want a boyfriend, I want a boyfriend, but I guess it was a fairly natural progression that, you, yes, as we all do, started to get interested in matters of sex fairly early in life, um, at about, I guess, 14, 15, which is probably, in fact, younger, uh, older than some people. But when you, live in a, when you grow up in a specialised school environment, you... Those sort of activities are a little more conspicuous. We used to go on a summer camp at school and um, the boys would always sneak into the girls' tent at night and the camp supervisors some years later said, well, we used to go around and, you know, hammer the tent pegs down and they'd be all pulled up in the morning. <laughs> so they, I think they knew well and truly what was going on. <laughs> It was most definitely more personality. The sound of a person's voice also made a big difference. Um, very much 
touch as well, probably, in, in fact, probably more so than anything initially when your hormones were running wild, um, somebody grabbed you by the hand and, you know, this big thrill went through <laughs> But um, I guess smell, the, the sort of deodorant that people use often think, you know, it stirs up that kind of thing in you. At one stage when I was a kid, I used to think there were two things I'd like to do in life, go to university and be a member of parliament. Trying to recall, but I think a teacher was one of them. I think I always hoped and wanted to be in music and I think I'm still a frustrated musician somewhere in me. I'm always listening to music now, but I never got to play at all. And then I also wished that I could be behind the scenes in music, but no, I didn't go down that path. Telephonist was the big job for people who were blind or vision impaired when I was uh, growing up and in I fact... I ended up as a telephonist. Uh, when I couldn't get a job as a lawyer after university... With um telecom, as it was called then. That's part of the work I started doing. I, I started working at the... And I had um, that job for nearly 24 years. Lotteries Commission, uh, answering the telephone, uh, doing the switchboard and telling people the winning lotto number. And then... North Rocks were looking for a proofreader. I was made redundant from that job by an answering machine, uh, but uh, but I took that job as a clerical assistant in the public service because I couldn't get a job as a lawyer. And so I began work with North Rocks in 1990. And I decided I had to um, get a job somewhere and then and then try and uh, climb my way up, and and that's what I was able to to do. But and that was only eight years, but I was happier there than I'd been anywhere in work. Working in dark rooms was another job that many blind people did and those sorts of uh, uh, activities were, um, were very much the, the norm for people who are blind or vision impaired. About uh, halfway through my year, when I was the year I was 24, I happened to be at Royal Blind Society and the Australian Broadcasting Tribunal, as it then was, were... Um, we were starting to, the, this whole notion of affirmative action in, in employment, equal employment opportunity and things were starting to kind of take, take some, get some momentum. And they were looking to fill their receptionist position with someone who's blind. So I happened to be in the right place at the right time. So I spent three years as a receptionist at the Broadcasting Tribunal. And then we went through a big restructure and um, because I'd started to understand more, I guess, what, what equal employment opportunity is and, you know, that, you know, blind people do have a right to, you know, be treated equally in the workplace, I said, well, how about we use some of these principles that we're sprouting to, um, for me to, to do a different job because I, I was bored with that receptionist job within six months of the three years I did it. I had... No idea really what I wanted to do, but I thought maybe I'd want to be a teacher or something, but I was going to go. And the, the, the thing I didn't really want to do was to stay at home because I thought if I'm at home here, that's where I'll be stuck. I heard that the Royal Blind Society was running a course in Braille shorthand, so I did that at night. And then when we learnt the system, they sent us off to a funny little place in Cleveland Street where uh, a brother and sister taught court reporters and public servants speed shorthand. They would give you tests on speed shorthand and they agreed to take us. There were three or four blind people who'd done the course. 
and they agreed to take us and to train us to do speed shorthand. And the Pittman Association, because they couldn't check our shorthand because it was in Braille, but they agreed to give us a certificate on our transcripts. And eventually we got that because, see, everyone used to get a certificate, say, for 120 or whatever it was. And so I think I eventually got up to doing 130 and had one... I'd, once I thought I might be a court reporter, uh, you had to have a speeds of 150 words per minute to do that. And I used to go back and train and I you know, could do 160. My first, uh, my first job actually was as a telephonist. I always wanted to be a teacher from about 10 onwards. Got accepted into Riverina College of Advanced Education and uh, did my diploma of teaching. I've taught in the, in the primary sector uh, and senior college, senior secondary college and at TAFE and university. Uh, I never had much trouble with the students. It was mainly the bureaucracy and hierarchy, I'm afraid. They really didn't have much expectation, I don't think, as for a blind Aboriginal woman teacher. It was difficult in lots of ways, but I, I'm an optimist and I just kept going. Well, I spent... Uh about 12 months and about 30 interviews um, applying for legal jobs and I think the main reason that I didn't get a job was that uh, people just couldn't work out how a person who was blind or vision impaired could could work as a lawyer and um, although I told them uh, a lot about what I could do um, and explained that I'd done it at university and College of Law. Uh, people uh, really couldn't see it and uh, and so didn't employ me. So that was a pretty a pretty frustrating year and I think that was the, the first time I'd really experienced uh, uh, sort of discrimination and, and, and rejection because it's not something I'd got from my family or my community. I'd got a lot of encouragement. So that was a pretty tough year. Um, but uh, then I worked out the strategy to, to get through that, which was get a job as a clerical assistant and then work my way up. I studied uh, at Monash University. I was able to do articles from one of Melbourne's uh, large law firms and then um, got work in the public service, in the Commonwealth Public Service, which is what took me to Canberra. I worked in various public service departments. Or, uh, most of my working life was in the Attorney General's department in various roles. The um, most significant one of which I did was my final role, which I occupied for 17 years as the um, main person responsible for maintaining the Commonwealth's database of legal opinion. The only thing I applied for was a Commonwealth Scholarship, which was a fairly new thing then. It was only the second year of the Commonwealth Scholarship. And uh, then um, I did get a Commonwealth Scholarship, so I thought, ha, I'm going, going off to uni. I had no idea really what I wanted to do, but I thought maybe I'd want to be a teacher or something. I was very ill-equipped for, for it. Um, I hadn't done any any mobility, and um, in uh, there was no there was no such thing as mobility training in those days. Families were very protective, and so I had no experience of travel, and I think that's essential for anybody going to university or doing anything else after high school. I mostly latched on to other students going to to. Uh, 
uh, uni lectures and they, and they actually really did help me a lot. I'd have to say that it got a lot better when I actually got to know some blind people and it was really blind people who taught me to travel. It seems a long time since I was with Fred Hollows in his clinic at Prince of Wales and he said to me, well, you've got retinitis pigmentosa. And I said, so? And he said, well, that means you will need to probably spend part of your life as a blind person. While Bolan and Merrill, his wife, were much-loved members of the blindness community after Wall's vision deteriorated, he was a vice-president of BCA for many years. I set about finding out what it meant to be blind. And many of you have been my guides, if you like, into, in my transition from the world of being a fairly relatively sighted person, a car driver, a teacher in a school of graphic arts, into a person who saw a new challenge, one which has sometimes proved very scary, very daunting. But I look around a room like this tonight in a real sort of sense and know that there are many people here who helped me to get to a place where I can cope, where I can find fulfilment, where I can feel that I belong. Started off living in a hostel that was run by the Royal Blind Society when I first came to Sydney, but then eventually I moved out and went flatting with girlfriends and I was um, flatting with girlfriends when I was doing these studies. I had never completed a leaving certificate, as it was called in those days, so I decided to go back and do that at night to train for that. So I did mathematics and then, you know, took English, of course, you had to, and ancient and modern history and economics. And they, of course, was a matter of a lot of reading and things, but they were not di too difficult for me, except that it was uh, a pretty heavy schedule with going to evening classes about four nights a week, plus working full time. So I think it's important for blind people or any people really, to be able to make some contribution to determining what's going to happen. And uh, since I was a blind person, I felt I wanted to have some, some say in what was going to happen to me in my life. And maybe by participating in these organisations that I could help other people determine that they would have a say in their lives too. This podcast featured the voices and stories of Joan Lederman, Susan Thompson, Graham Innes, Sandy Dark... Lynn McGregor, Roz Sackley, Robert Altamore, Murray Shang, Sondra Wibberley, Wal Bolan and Jennifer Parry. It was produced by Angela Caterns and edited by Damon Sutton for Blind Citizens Australia. Theme song by Emma Benison. To rephrase Diana Braun, the people in this program are busy and competent, but they are in no way exceptional. Vision loss may have affected the way in which they achieve their goals, or even the goals they set themselves, but it's far from the most important factor in their lives. Loss of vision often causes inconvenience, because you have to find different ways of doing things that the rest of society takes for granted. Being blind can create challenges because of the way other people react to it. People who are blind do not need or welcome pity. 
They may appreciate help at certain times and under certain circumstances, but their lives are as varied as any other people's. They are the same, only different. Because the winds are changeable. 